Welcome back to Play to Find Out, the Dungeon World discussion podcast formed on the Dungeon World Discord. I'm Arthur, or Art Projects, one of your co-hosts. And my name is Eamon, also Voidlight on the Discord. Well, welcome, Eamon. How has your week been? It's been good. I've been getting a lot of uh, interesting times to read RPG stuff, just because there's been cool discussions happening on the Discord, and some of the things we've talked about in this podcast that I mention, I'm like, oh yeah, check out this, because it's awesome. I almost say that to myself, and I'm like, oh yeah, that is awesome, and I go back and reread it, and then just new ideas fill my head. Reading through um, Marvels and Malaisons and Wonder and Wickedness, the two spell supplements that I think I probably mentioned uh, at some point last week, has been phenomenal. Like, I just forgot how much I love those magic systems, but... Um, yeah, I've, I've got some highlights too that I can oh, share with you. Oh, good. I can't wait to hear them. The game that's been most consistent for me recently and actually um, getting some play has actually been the PvP game that I've um, alluded to a few times on the Discord. And there's a, a quick moment from that and then a special other moment that I'll say. From the PvP game, my character is... Uh, I'm using a third-party Warlock playbook just because I always like the idea of Warlocks and people who are sort of half magic users that they they use these powerful magic secrets, but they don't fully understand them because they're borrowing them from something else, which makes them complicated. And anyway, we got to this temple that we were trying to go to, and there was this altar and um, that we had been drawn to and were trying to go to find out how our enemies were able to always know our every move and randomly appear. And it seemed like they were teleporting to our location, so we were trying to find out how they were doing that and where they were based out of. So we find this altar, and on top of it is this shimmering portal. And we start conversing with this beast, this creature that we don't know what it is. We can't see it. The voice is just issuing from the portal. And he's calling himself Omlu, or Amulu. And eventually, the thing is revealed, and it's a beholder. And it was just one of the coolest monster reveals uh, that I actually not just read about, but got to see and play in a game, um, where we were like, I, I don't know what this is. And like, it was actually a genuine surprise of us being like, what's going to come through here. We hadn't, I didn't know beho- beholders were even in this world necessarily. Like we hadn't like seen one yet or like hadn't been talked about, but this thing comes out and he didn't say, Oh, here's a beholder. Um, Hobbitmeister, the GM said like this enormous floating monstrosity comes out with a single eye. And as it gazes upon you, the silver fire wreathing your hands just goes out and your connection to your patron is like effectively severed you know because it's like dampening all the magic yeah and all of its eye stalks like looking around and we were all just like a beholder oh my gosh so that's definitely been fun and and just reinvigorated my love for just like those moments like the boss reveal or something along those lines did you ever read the dnd 3.5 supplement uh that was focused exclusively on aberrations no, but that sounds super cool. I did so, read Volo's Guide. Okay, um, my I character don't, it, is kind of named after Volo. But. It's killing me. I can't remember what this book was called, but it was basically, I think, five chapters on five different aberrations from the Monster Manual and variations on each one. And there was a, just a full chapter on Beholders. And you know, I was reading this when I was probably 12 or 13. And it was just a fixation for me like oh my god beholders are so cool they what, are what a yeah. neat monster and all these different versions of beholders that they presented there i really i got a huge kick out of out of uh, reading that not that i ever got a chance to play but 
Have you yeah. read Volo's Guide? The I, fifth edition I have not, no. So that, I think, is basically a revival of what you were talking about, because the first part of Volo's Guide is, uh, I think, five or six chapters, and each of them is a different classic D&D monster just given a full treatment. Like, different tables on, like, how to make... Uh, interesting anachronistic versions of them with like different skin patterns, what a typical layer might look like, what their culture is like, different variations of like subtypes of them. And the first chapter is beholders. And then they do giants, orcs, wanti, uh, like goblins and hobgoblins, uh, kobolds. Um, I think they do hags. So it's really cool to like see those things. And they showed like tons of different beholders, what a beholder layer might look like. And I think the beholder one was the one that interested me most because they talk about how the unique nature of beholders and how they're so weird really affects their living space. Like mm-hmm. a lot of times they have vertical passages because they can fly and you can't, you yeah. know, and they decorate things with um, statues of petrified people because they have the ability to like petrify people. And so sometimes they'll even have ground up petrified people, like just as like rubble to like hinder people moving along the floor or Ew. stuff like that. Gnarly. Have I like that a lot. They'll have very high ceilings sometimes so that the light from the ground and torches and sconces won't reach all the way up. Mm-hmm. So that if they're hanging out near the ceiling, they're in darkness and they can just shoot lasers down yeah. at you. Like, it's kind of amazing. I love the idea that beholders are just so defensive and paranoid that they've built their entire crazy underground mansions with the express intention of subverting adventurers who come a calling. I also love that their weakness is kind of like built in of like yeah. that, that paranoia that can be exploited and how new beholders are born which I don't know if it's said anywhere, like um, like you'd have to read this on a wiki or something, but reading this book, Volo's Guide, was the first time I learned that new beholders are created by one beholder dreaming of another one and like calling it into being. Like, they, like their dream of another beholder, like in fear, they're like, oh man, what if there was something else like as perfect as myself that was going to take me over? And then their fears come true. Like a new beholder spawns and then they fight and they either flee in different directions or one kills the other. And now there's a new beholder. Aww. And now it's just like, imagine you're like a minion of beholder and you're like, you know, humdy dum, your beholder master is just sort of like chilling out, sleeping with its un unsleeping gaze as it were and then suddenly a second beholder is there and a fight happens like that would be just what a time what if if you walk in with your party right at that moment yeah i wish the beholders weren't uh i believe the intellectual property of wizards of the coast it'd be nice if those were a little bit more uh yeah uh, a little bit more freeware a little more open source you can use them in your home games yeah i've also seen people be a little cheeky with it like blizzard when they Mm -hmm. did their kobolds and catacombs expansion for hearthstone there was different bosses that you could find at the end of the dungeon after you played through all the decks. And one of them was called, I think, Zul the Unshackled. Mm-hmm. And it was literally just a beholder. Like, they changed the, the look of it a little bit. But it's like different eye yeah. beams and, like, yeah. Yeah. Cool. What do beholders eat? They, I don't remember. It definitely uh, says that in Volo's Guide. But I think they just eat, like, whatever fits their fancy they don't like subsist on like they do need to eat i do remember that but um they they just basically pick whatever they want levitate it with one of their eyes and just plop it in their mouth right because um, i'm, I'm just thinking about yeah. like beholder agriculture it's not like they're out there plowing the fields or anything they're... no they have minions yeah uh, any self-respecting beholder has slaves of course you know? yeah um I mean, what yeah. other what else would a, an eyeball of evil do So I've got another highlight. Uh, This one is from um, a game that one of my little brothers actually ran. I I came home one day and was uh, chatting with them. And this kid's like 10. 
and he was like, oh, guess what? Uh, there was this uh, board game day at school, and so I printed off Dungeon World sheets and ran Dungeon World. And I was like, nice. You're growing up so well. Oh, you and, should be um, so proud. He, so I asked him, I was like, what was the session like? Because it was just this like board game day where, first of all, what a school. Like, yeah, yeah. Wish, what, wish what? Board game day in college. Like, yeah. oh my gosh. We had but, Stratego. Yeah, yeah. But apparently there was just dedicated to like, you can just bring in anything because he basically was able to have like a three hour session or All whatever. All right. Yeah. But, um, bring in Battlestar Galactica, the board game, be there for the rest of the day. No school. He said, first of all, he had seven players. So I think he had almost every class represented minus like the bard, I think. Um, and he told me a little bit about what went on, um, in, in great detail because that's just how he is. But, yeah. um, one of the moments that stuck out to me was, the, the basic thing the party was trying to do was infiltrate this castle and rescue a prisoner. And the castle was like goblin controlled, basically. And, um, of all these players, um, one of them was a druid. And the druid said that he wanted to shapeshift into a goblin because part of his backstory was that his whole town was ransacked by goblins or something. And he had been like intimately familiar with them. And my brother ruled that that was okay and that he, literally like shapeshifted into a goblin to like impersonate um them which i think per dungeon world is something that you could eventually do like with um later you know an upgrade there's an upgraded move that drew that lets you transform into a humanoid um and then so i just thought that was really interesting because i hadn't thought of um that sort of thing like shapeshifting into them like as a way of um infiltration and then there was another thing where once they found the prisoner one of the players like killed them like they're trying to extradite this person and, and rescue them. And one of the players, one of the player characters like murdered the, the person they were trying to rescue. And then everyone else just had to like deal with that, which is just very interesting to like hear of a bunch of like 10 year olds and younger, like playing this game and getting the concept of just, you know, a little bit of gonzo role play where they're like, oh, well, I can do anything. Here's what I'm going to do. Well, let's but, hope that this 10 year old grows out of it. Yeah. It's I think it went well. It wasn't like entirely mean spirited. It was in the, in the, something something had had to do with their character. Okay. But as long as it was uh, a, it was appropriate and justified, that is really good. And he's like, "Oh yeah, and we also ran out of time for the session." And I was like, "Well, seems like you got the real role-playing experience." Wow. What a treat. You know, I I I came to Dungeon World a few years ago already in my adulthood. I wish that I had known about I wish I I'm not even sure it existed yet when I was 10. I wish it had. Oh, certainly not. I think Dungeon World is like eight years old. Okay. I don't know. It, it was. In, I think it was like 2013 wow. or something. I don't know. Yeah. That that doesn't add up to eight. I, I I recognize, but. So should we get into the adventure workshop for today? I'm so ready. All right, so today's adventure workshop is based on something we talked about in last week's Picture This episode, the red banana, and more generally, the the way to use food in your games. Amen. How do we use food to make our games better? Any way you can dream up. Food is something that has so much potential and often gets left by the wayside. Totally. Especially when people are describing something, they're going to say, this is how it looks. And probably that's it. And if you get stabbed, maybe how it feels, I guess. But um, something um, that makes 
a, a great GM um, in terms of storytelling a lot of times is engaging some of the other senses. And people talk about this all the time, all five senses, all five senses. Mm. But in role playing, that matters a lot. And like, there's so many ways to do it. Um, in uh, Veins in the Dark, which we have um, talked about a couple of times uh, by now the on the Earth, show. Right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Veins. I'm getting this mixed up with the Blades in the Dark. Yeah, a great uh, yeah. game. Veins of the Earth. Every monster um, entry in their in their bestiary talks about how the monster sounds and what it smells like because they assume there will be times when you cannot see them because it's in the dark. And so there are like smell descriptions and sound descriptions for all of these. Um, and I've seen in other supplements, uh, food treated more so. Um, for example, in Yun Sin or Yun Suin, however you wish to pronounce it, which is uh, an Asian-inspired and Indian-inspired setting, which is phenomenal, but I won't go into much. There are random tables for generating flavors of soup and things like that because they, is, and, and sorry, it's not soup, but tea. I've seen soup elsewhere, but for tea, because tea is so important to the setting of different types of tea and tea is bartered and traded and you could be killed over like a, a very rare cup of tea or things like that. So flavor is definitely important in those contexts. Additionally, it's something that you can be used to show poverty or to show wealth. You're like, this person's so poor that they're eating XYZ, fitting your setting. Or you walk into this room and you see a, a luscious spread of, uh, you know, a ZYX, you know, that there's mm -hmm. just, those things can be indicators of things. They can be character moments and they can also be mechanical moments. Um, because sometimes what kills the character is the, the, the need of something, you know, like if, if you're somewhere where food is hard to get, treat it kind of like ammo where we didn't care about food up to now in terms of granularly tracking it but you let them know as a gm that food's gonna matter you know for the next totally. couple of days you're right. gonna have to rations actually count right now right yeah. and that's sometimes for long travel but also um just hunting like on a mm -hmm. given night you know like if you've got a ranger in the group that's gonna matter you know that you can hunt and and don't let the players off the hook like ask them what does it taste like? What is this the first time you've eaten food mm -hmm. that was prepared in front of you? Like what what is eating this beast you've never eaten before taste like? Yeah. I mean the the Undertake a Perilous Journey move incorporates the idea that food is important uh pretty clearly with the quartermaster role and the yeah. ability to roll for the ability to stretch your food further or hunt something along the way. But that doesn't mean you have to montage through the process. If you want, instead of undertaking a perilous journey to handle that, if you want to have the acquisition of enough food to survive another night be part of the adventure, that's really exciting. You know, I think the pursuit of a game rabbit is as compelling as a grand adventure of, you know, trying to dispose of a ring in a volcano. And you can it make a full sequence out of that out of that single experience the single additionally if you're undertaking a per perilous journey we're assuming that you're somewhere perilous or that the situation is perilous um in perilous lands it, it it's very possible that you're competing for the only available game with predators you know for and sure. so or those predators are the only things that are safe to eat so what you might be hunting might be hunting you at the same time. And that's a whole encounter right there of like the purpose of fighting this monster is not because they have any treasure whatsoever, but just because we will die. If we don't eat something, you know, in the next 72 hours, you know? Yeah. But then the other thing you you mentioned here is the way that that food is a, a signal of class and of ability oh, yeah. and value. And I want to go it's into not that just for a the little bit too. The... The, the, well, okay, fine. The flavor that you can add by talking about food is <laughs> like really something you can foreground. 
I would love to dive a little deeper on that exact thing. You know, let's talk a little bit about how to present food in games. So food kind of engages two senses that we, as we think of it, right? Smell and taste. But of course, we talked about this last week with the red bananas. It's about sight. Too, sight yeah. is absolutely part of it. Feel, texture is absolutely a part of it. And I want to, I don't know. I think, I think one, one thing we should do right now is just talk through some different ways we can describe food. And I also want to shout out Brian Jack, author of the Redwall books, for being probably the best at this. I still want trifle. I'm not sure what trifle is, but I still want trifle from reading those books as a kid. It's a little pastry, isn't it? Maybe. I feel like it's got cream somehow and cake. I think those are two ingredients. I don't know more than that. So. It appears to be an English cuisine that's a dessert made with fruit, a thin layer of sponge finger soaked in sherry or another fortified uh, wine and custard. Okay. So, so yeah, it's kind of like a parfait as we would understand. Oh, okay. Parfaits are great. So let's talk about the different kinds of food and the different things that we can use them to emotionally represent. There is the comforting stick to your ribs home cooking of your favorite inn that you've returned to. And then, of course, there's their signature spice mix that you find on the ground after a particularly long adventure when you return and find the inn has been ransacked. Dive into that smell memory with your players. Make it something that they uh, that they recur or that that recurs with them. Oh, you smell that that savory blend that they always use oh that savory stew is sticks to your ribs as you retire for the night and then you know twist it around on them and then of course there's the the sickly sweet aroma of the palace bakery as the gluttonous king is fed another tray of pastries it can almost be poetic like when you get into these places where the descriptions become so evocative that like you're weaving this multi-sensory picture for your players and they'll jump on board yeah hopefully you know and and it'll be this back and forth which is what we a lot of times come to role playing for mm -hmm. is to be made to imagine something vivid so you know if you like cooking in particular or even if you don't like cooking one way to start to build these these tools is look at what the judges on cooking shows say about food when they're playing to the camera. Because those sensory descriptions that they use to communicate to a viewer without the two flavor senses, they're really effective. At least for me, they're really effective. So that is, this, yeah, that's a whole skill right there that I think yeah. a lot of people could stand to improve in. Because sometimes, totally. you know, you ask someone like, they, they buy something that you wanted to also taste at a restaurant or something. And you're like, oh, dude, how is it? And they're just like, it's good. Yeah, you want to try something? And some? they can't give you more than that. You know, you're like they're or, or or if they're like far away, right? Or they're taste, tasting something and you're like, you know, texting or calling and you're asking them to describe it to you. If they can't like do it justice, like you can tell, you know? Totally. So like it's it's delicious. You're like, how so? You know? Right. And one so one way to develop that skill is just paying attention to how the professionals do it. Read food reviews, watch cooking shows, watch videos on YouTube where people are making stuff. And then, of course, there's the uh, the technique that I I love doing this. Go and figure out how to describe wine and coffee, because wine and coffee are two substances that have so much information about how to describe the flavors how to explain the sensory experience of enjoying it. There's a fair amount of crossover between the two as well in terms of what the words are. So there are ample resources to 
up your game in terms of how you present food to your audience and to your listeners, not to your audience. That's how we're presenting it to you out there. Yeah. If you're not like incredibly invested in, in like the culture of wine or of coffee and describing those things, that's okay. But having a working appreciation for it will make you a better jam because you can portray characters that do, you know, if a, if the characters come across someone who's like very snooty about a certain beverage in your setting or is like an aficionado for something or is a connoisseur mm -hmm. describing that elitism or that um, particular taste and that sort of atmosphere uh, is very evocative and can cr really flesh out a character as an NPC. Absolutely. I'm also thinking now of potential um, encounters that somehow involve food. Like maybe you're raiding Hell's Kitchen, like literally the kitchen of Hell, and there are like food golems, you know, like these creatures trying to kill you, like literally made of different meals or pots mm -hmm. and pans, or like a knife spirit that like literally you have to... Um, cajole this knife spirit to like teach a blade yeah. how to be you have to, sharp, you have to distract you know? it by sending uh by by sending fruit flying its way so that it is <laughs> chopping away at that while you i don't know destroy its phylactery uh i don't know how <laughs> almost as a ninja would yeah, would you say perhaps yes hmm. <laughs> hmm anyway so you know food it's a really cool way to make more senses engaged in your games if you use food in an adventure coming up, make sure you send us a message, let us know how it goes, and ask questions about how to approach it if you would like to. I'll link to some random food tables because there's at least three that I know of that are great and just are like a joy to read through even if you don't get to use them at the table. I think one for different alcoholic beverages that you can like put into your setting, uh, one for soup, and then I'll link to you and San and inside that is one for tea. But speaking of food in our games i think it's time for us to move to meta talk and talk a little bit about food outside of our game delicious so i have mentioned on the show that i've been hosting an in-person group of players a few times over the last couple of months and that has also meant that I felt responsible for creating sort of a welcoming home environment for them to sit down and play in. And part of that has involved making food and trying to be a good host. And this is something that I've always done for my in-person games, whether it's at a convention or with people that I know in a recurring setting. And I think I want to drill down on that instinct a little bit, that the GM also has to be the host and also has to be responsible for everyone else's fun. Because I think that that instinct can be detrimental to the GM's fun if it's not properly managed. Eamon, have you ever experienced something like that? Um, the being on the hook for everyone else having fun, for sure. Um, whether it relates specifically to food, um, for me, I don't have like a ton of experiences with. In a fifth edition game that I um, played in for some time, it was just a tradition that we would always play and go through dinner. And so we would just order pizza and that was the thing. And I would always drink a Guinness like along with the game, um, just as a personal tradition. But the idea that if other people are like, uh, going to play this game and it's a game set up such that there is a GM, you're the person that it's like, Oh, if this doesn't work out, it's probably your fault. Like you ran the game wrong or something like that is a mentality that can be held, especially at a con game where if like someone comes to this table, they're a lot of times looking to the GM to, make it fun and uh, putting them 
making them feel welcome out of game and giving them a good experience and just straight up putting them in a good mood is part of that, whether you like it or not. And I don't know, you said you have food for your players at con games? Yeah, I usually will get uh, some wholesome snacks and a bunch of candy and just scatter it across the table with the dice at the beginning of the session. Make it clear See, that right there. I'm like, I want to be at this guy's yeah, table to make it clear that everyone is welcome and everyone should be free, should feel free to take stuff from this communal table. It also cuts down on people having to leave in order to get something to eat and cuts down on anger due to low blood sugar. Yeah, or just being hangry. Yeah, you know, but at the same time, I think that. Well, OK, here, here's how I have been thinking about this recently. The first two times I hosted my current group, it was a lot of fun, but I also felt a little bit drained after cooking all that food. It was really exciting to cook, but I don't I don't think I would like to cook the next time we all get together. But what's it's cool stressful. is that we kind of came up with a compromise for that, which is that now some of my players are going to take turns hosting as well. So they'll host, they'll provide the food, people can bring stuff if they're so inclined. But then I, as the GM, will just have to sit down there and run the game while someone else takes care of the hosting responsibilities. And that's something that had never occurred to me. I think partially because I keep I'm consistently playing either convention games or online games where the space in which we are playing is a neutral space or an unshared space. So the host role automatically falls to the GM because they're the person who is there to bring everybody together and facilitate. And that's totally not the case with in-person games. And I think like I'm in the process of discovering that right now. It's just a weird difference that had never occurred to me before that in-person games have this this shared space element to it that ends up being pretty meaningful in terms of making the space welcoming and inclusive for everybody. If you think about it, RPGs are inherently potluck because everyone's supposed to be bringing something to the table. Yeah. It's not just one person telling a story to something else. And you're a bad so guest if you don't bring something and if you don't share what, what other people have brought. Right. So this extending this idea to just having a nice, welcoming play community and play space, like supporting your other players across multiple spectra is um, natural and like I think flows out from the spirit of the hobby. And whether that be bringing food and sharing it or bringing snacks or thanking people that do or even um, this is making me think of the slightly broader um, issue of, of um, just financially, like supporting someone in the game if it matters. And what I mean by that is a lot of times it falls in the GM that like they own the books or whatever materials are related to this game or like they own dice and they're providing character sheets for you and all these things, which they um, have some sort of cost associated with them, with, which for certain games can be quite expensive. And um, different groups um, have different ways of approaching what the social contract there is. Um, I'm thinking coming to my mind now is uh, Invisible Sun, which just as a game is just an example of a very expensive game that the game... Uh, the physical materials cost quite a bit. Um, and they literally, the uh, Monty Cook Games has a system set up where multiple people can purchase um, the game. Like on their website, you can purchase something which is basically like a fourth of the game and then you gift it to your GM and then he makes oh, the full wow. purchase. So that like, yeah, so we're like the group like can all per collectively purchase this game. So it's not just falling to one person huh. and, like drop a couple hundred dollars out of pocket. That's something you don't think a lot of, about a lot with Dungeon World because Dungeon World is effectively quite cheap yeah. um i mean if, if all you want is the rules there's the srd out there and you can print the sheets for free and that type of stuff um although the book is a, a wonderful product and nice to have Certainly. um yeah and rpgs are kind of this like 
they're both a luxury hobby where a lot of people can sink a lot of money into it and have a lot of paraphernalia and props, but they're also like a poor man's hobby. Like you can play RPGs with nothing, you know? But now that we've talked a little bit about how to share the responsibility of the food that you all come together and eat, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about my theory about the around the perfect gaming spread. Go for it. So I have a lot of theories about this. Thing one, ideally the food that you should that you have at the table should be relatively clean to eat with your fingers. I consider that to be the ideal snack food at a table. Something that you can dip into with your hands without having to worry about it impacting your character sheet or getting on your dice or whatever else. Ideal snacks for this. Hummus and carrots or Occasionally, potato chips and car- and uh, hummus. Hummus is great because it's a delicious dip, relatively healthful, relatively wholesome. Carrots are delicious. They've got a nice crunch to them, but they're also pretty easy to eat with your hands. So dipping some baby carrots in some hummus, just a classic, easy way to get everyone, uh, get everyone fed for a relatively affordable price as well. Now... On top of that, I'll typically go with some mixed nuts at the table as well, something to grab a handful of and snack on one at a time, but not pistachios or anything else that requires manual unshelling. I always go with pre-shelled nuts. Uh, usually I'll go with... Yeah, it could be a little distracting. Totally. Otherwise. Uh, the spread that I had in my last game were honey roasted almonds, which were a mistake, too sticky, um, and then dry roasted cashews, which were delicious, and pecans. Pecans have a weird bitterness to them, so you might consider toasting them with a little bit of brown sugar or something first as a way to cut through that bitterness a little. But be careful, again, not to make it too sticky. Now, for the player with a heartier appetite, or for the game that's going to go for so many hours that dinner or lunch is a requirement, it becomes a little bit harder to make something that kind of suits that finger food style. So for that purpose, I like to go with bowl food. Foods that lend themselves well to a bowl, specifically, usually, stews, staple grains, and vegetables. Now, if you have a group of people that are willing to eat meat, which my group is about 50-50 on that issue, one really great way to make sure everyone is fed with something really delicious and sort of table-appropriate is a nice, hearty, tavern-style beef stew. In particular, oxtail or short rib is a great, really fatty, really unctuous cut of meat, which which takes well to long cooking time. That means you can throw it in at the beginning of your game, leave it in the oven until dinner time, and then when dinner time comes around, pull it out, and you've got a perfectly cooked, fall-off-the-bone tender stew ready to go. You serve that up with some barley that you put on the stove, uh, that you cook up on the stove before the you know the day before, and leave in the fridge. And, you know, at the same time, maybe throw some vegetables in the oven, have those ready as well. And there you've got your wholesome, hearty meal that gets everyone filled up and ready to get back into the game. Unlike, say, Domino's Pizza, where you'll be hungry again after an hour or so, and also too full and sick to function. So, these are my table snack theories. Eamon, do you think I'm missing anything? Um, there's one category I'd love to hear you speak to, which is alcoholic beverages. For our above a or of age listeners out there, yes. um, there is a long-standing tradition of alcoholic beverages and role-playing mm-hmm. games going hand in hand. What are your recommendations? Well, it depends on the group with which I'm playing, but typically, I think that over the course of a session, if you're enjoying a a, a beer or a cider, that ends up being sort of the ideal drink experience. Personally, I'm a stout and porter guy. I like dark beers, lots of malty Mm. flavors. 
Yes, a mana from my own oh, heart. They're wonderful. And they just feel right at the table. And then, of course, a nice cider is a great tart option as well, especially for autumn. But I also feel like, depending on the game and sort of the, the table expectation, I personally have fears around having more than one drink at the table. I feel like it gets me a little loopy. One yeah. will one won't really affect my abilities too much, but as a GM, I already get distracted pretty easily. So having something to aid that becomes a little bit of a challenge. So I limit myself to one, and typically one relatively light beverage in terms of alcohol. Sure, you want to be you want to be on your A game, but at the same and you time, you want to pace yourself. At the same time, a lot of players that I've played with have expressed that they feel a lot more comfortable if they've had a drink because they're able to get into it a little bit more easily. They're less uh, caught up in their own head. And if that's the case for you, that's very true. it's a great way to manage that is to have a sort of codified way to get yourself into a headspace that you're comfortable with. Light alcohol use is a perfectly reasonable way to do that, I presume. I am not a doctor or a therapist, so enjoy. It's well documented, though, that uh, one of the effects of alcohol is some lowering of inhibitions. Yes. And that is... Uh, helpful in a sense to role playing it certainly to, doesn't hurt you know to a judicious for some people amount you know and with temperance in mind mm -hmm. like being able to um just not worry about like are the other people on the table you know like accepting what i'm offering right now and just going with what feels natural like if it if it if you are able to do that better mm -hmm. with whatever ritual it is for you of having a little drink like along with the game all the more yeah power power to you, to you. And then, of course, beer and wine after the fact as a way to wind down is a perfectly nice thing to crack as soon as you get to the end of session moves. Absolutely. I was also going to say that there's the opportunity that might come up and don't feel pressure to do this like every single session or something like that. But for big moments or for a set piece, um, not just encounter, but location, like if the players are going to the palace, that's a great time to like go that little extra mile and put something out like a cheese spread or mm -hmm. like crack open a nice bottle of wine or something because it'll it'll really get everyone like into the moment i think that like cheese particularly could be well suited to this because it's easy to eat with your hands for a lot of them especially if they're in little cubes um it goes well with crackers sometimes additionally it's very aromatic mm -hmm. which um especially if some something's happening where the players are actually visiting like a, a kitchen or something like that like having those sorts of things like is almost uh creating a multi-sensory experience Absolutely. Food is a lot of fun at the table, and if managed effectively, it can be a really great way to just make the whole environment a little bit more homey, a little bit more fun. And really, you know, role-playing games are a social experience that should feel like a party when you're playing them. So, yeah, people want to come back. Lean into you it. You know, if you're, if you're, like, putting on a good time. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So that's my theories around food at the table. Now, why don't we jump into another sensory experience with picture this. So this week, what I have cooked up for you is see what I did there. Oh God. Um, <laughs> this is um, one of my favorite uh offbeat role-playing games like a, a, a sort of niche one that's less known um and at the core conceit of this game is something that i think that is great for a picture this session and could be easily imported into dungeon world um, if you were so willing this game is called cryptomancer 
And the whole concept of the game is that it's a fantasy universe. Um, they keep the fantasy universe relatively um, vanilla um, in the uh, in the setting materials as described in the core book, just so that um, the 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 thing that I'm about to say can take front and center, which is that it's your your average fantasy uh, pseudo medieval universe, except there are these things called shards, which are special crystals that, when cut by an expert gem cutter, um, can be used to send messages across long distances. If two shards are cut from the same like parent shard, one person can hold one in their hand, speak a message, and the other person will be able to see that message written in their mind's eye when holding the other shard. Layered on top of that is a special discipline of magic called cryptomancy, where you can literally encrypt messages with special key phrases. And the whole setting goes into describing like how this changes everything. It changes how commerce works in this world. It changes how warfare and espionage work in this world. It changes how just communication is works in this world. And um, cryptomancy becomes this really important thing that if you're able to make something unreadable to something else, you are hireable. You are, that's a desirable skill set. And if you are able to steal information that no one wants you to see through shards and to eavesdrop and, and penetrate networks and that type of stuff, that's also important. And basically the game um, is trying to give a fantasy role-playing experience married to the sort of hacker fantasy genre, which it pulls off, in my opinion. I Tastes may vary, but yeah. that's the basic idea. But there's so many iconic, not, not iconic, but um, evocative moments that j this concept brings up. I'd love to hear what, you, what your, your reactions are. Yeah, I've got are a couple it, of questions. So you say that a crystal breaks into shards and then each of those individual or can be cut into shards and then each of those shards communicates with all of the other shards from that crystal correct okay so the as many so for example if you cut a parent one into two mm -hmm. then that is a, a shard net or a network of two nodes and you can cut it into more and the the echoes as they're called which the messages themselves are called echoes they last for a certain amount of time and they basically continuously periodically send to all mm -hmm. other shards until they die out and become too faint to be read and um networks can be bridged and there are these things called golems that can um like act as automatic like packet switchers and and there has to be network admins yeah. like it goes into like describing it to the max but you could have this be very simplistic okay. in your game where there's just only ever two at right. a time or things I like that I see what you mean about the hacker fantasy because that like ancient and abiding trope of hacker fiction is getting into an encrypted network via one entry point that is unsecured that is what you're oh, describing yeah. right here. Every one of these endpoints is unsecured, but you need physical access in order to get into the network. That's right out of hacking fantasy. So they expand it pretty far with magic, yeah. though. Like there's there's literally a whole set of spells in this game that are only meaningful in the context of shards. Cool. Like there's a spell called shard warp, uh -huh. where if you're holding a shard, you can physically teleport yourself to the location of another shard on the mm -hmm. network, but none of your equipment will come Oh, with interesting. You. So you so could conceivably like go to the place where a shard golem is and then use that as a way to get into a different shard network. Um, yeah, there's different limitations about, like, can you go across bridge, uh, like network bridge networks and these different things? But, for example, like, there is, um, in, this, uh, in this setting, like, someone has a, a physical book with all of the key phrases and the and the passwords and things like that for um, the guard rotations and for like how to get into the vault and stuff like that. And if you can like raid that vault and murder that person, you literally have the keys to the kingdom effectively. 
you know, yeah. because you can now impersonate anyone mm-hmm. remotely by like sending a message encrypted as them, different things like that. And it gets, it gets really, yeah. really crazy. Um, literally, if you are um, interested in cryptography and are always like, I just want something light that's presented in mm-hmm. like a fun way to understand it. This book actually does a great job of that, even just from an educational standpoint. It basically tries to present both symmetric and asymmetric cryptography in an approachable way and like doesn't go that much further. So if you're like a huge um, infosec um, aficionado, this game might not fully satisfy you because it's trying to keep it rather light. Mm-hmm. But it's a really weird concept to marry these yeah. two things because what I'm talking about, that's definitely the purview of cyberpunk. Right. You know, but... Seeing it in a fantasy setting is oddly satisfying, yeah, and, and this game makes that. Really and I cool. love how physical it is. You know, I think a lot of really good hacking fantasies are around like getting into the Matrix and having your VR goggles on, and yeah, like, it's very abstract. Yeah, it's yeah. like abstract but still tangible in a weird way. In a lot of like Neuromancer, we were talking about before we got on mic today. Right, yeah. you got to make it look cool on it screen. It has to look cool so on screen. Speak. This yeah. this whole system seems like it's based around making it look cool on your proverbial screen. I'm very excited about this idea. I think I'm going to need to steal this for my upcoming game. Oh yeah. Um, additionally, uh, if you want to import this into the into a game that you're running without rewriting your whole setting or something like that, because this is definitely world changing, mm-hmm. uh, make it be um, something uh, niche or sectioned off that like this specific culture yeah. has this, you know, or like this um, conclave of mages has it, and it's a highly right. guarded thing of like how the mages are able to communicate yeah. long distances, even with mundane people using these. It could things. be that the PCs steal the one of the crystals from the Council of Mages, and they're able to grow it into a larger crystal and start to shave that off, and then suddenly everyone has democratized access to this one network, and making secure c- communications across a network that everyone is connected to becomes the w- the way of the game. If there's only ever the one. Um, or alternately, maybe the PCs find the first one of these crystals, and then you can delve into sort of the social implications of a of a communications revolution. Maybe they're maybe they use it to take down an oppressive state, or alternately, maybe they sell it to the highest bidder, and that highest bidder uses it to smash their enemies with their enhanced communication skill. Yeah, this game, this game's got a lot going on. Um, and I, I definitely, I'm not going to go into a full review of it here. Um, I'll throw a few things out there. For example, there's the risk eaters. Like the whole game is basically this downward spiral as these people are getting closer and closer to finding you, this all knowing faction called the risk eaters. Um, dragons in this world, um, are, are like a behind the scenes presence, much as they are in like Shadowrun and things like that and on and on. But you can go and check it out. I'll link it, uh, Cryptomancer. It's, uh, but I think just the concept of shards themselves is is notable and, for it. And very it. hackable. Love it. <laughs> so to speak. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, that's Picture This. Why don't we jump ahead to listener emails? I think we've got one this week, Eamon. Yep. We've got from St. John McCloskey. Um, and he is uh, Brendan Rivers uh, ESQ on Discord and Reddit. Uh, he says... Hey guys, just wanted to throw out there that I love your podcast. It's a great format. You guys have great chemistry and bring great content. The question I wanted to ask in relation to a few of your episodes is to ask if you have read or played Freebooters on the Frontier. It's a Dungeon World hack from the same guy that made Perilous Wilds. In particular, I want to ask you what you thought about the magic system. The magic user spells are great and very interesting, but very freeform. I can't decide if the spell effects, besides those that are variable, ought to be decided at the time of spell creation, at the time of spell preparation, or at the time of casting. 
i.e. the wizard has a spell named Lizak's Steel Spear. Maybe Lizak was a giant and this spell could be used to enlarge a weapon to the point of not being useful. Or maybe it can enchant a spear to be more effective. Or maybe a steel spear springs forth to strike someone for damage, or it summons a spear to be thrown manually. Lots of neat options, but again, how do you feel about deciding when the effects make sense? I'm also thinking about the cleric's prayer move. It's very open-ended, but seems neat. I'm also really in love with the moves in Freebooters. They feel very much like advanced dungeon world. Also, I think I'm going to use the ability damage in my games from here on out. The slower recovery from wounds makes them feel more meaningful and gives the narrative bits about the ogre breaks your arm some mechanical input too. Anyway, love the show. Just thought I'd ask your guys' thoughts about my favorite supplement slash hack of Dungeon World. Well, Brendan Rivers ESQ. Well, thank you so much, Brendan Rivers ESQ, for the question. So, Eamon, I just bought Freebooters on the Frontiers Frontier earlier today in response, in fact, to this exact question. And I'm curious, would you mind sharing for our listeners a little bit about how spell creation works in Freebooters on the Frontier? Sure. So uh, more generally, if you're like, what is Freebooters on the Frontier? It's basically someone read Dungeon World and was like, I love this and I want more and more in terms of more to their own playstyle, a little bit more crunch and just fleshing some things out. And that's why he, w- this uh, listener is likening it to um, advanced uh, Dungeon World. And if you've ever thought like, you know, Dungeon World's a lot, but mechanically leaves me slightly unsatisfied, but I like the spirit behind it. There are games you should check out and Freebooters is one of them. Um, but the magic system, the magic system in Freebooters reminds me of a magic system in another game I like, which is Maze Rats. And that is basically you generate a spell name and that's it. And then you basically improv like what the spell does just based on an evocative name. Uh, in Freebooters specifically, they arbitrate the mechanics of that based on you have a uh, spell power, which is I think like your int plus like some modifier and, and on and on. And you spend the spell power on different um, little mini charts. So for example, if you want a spell to affect a wide radius, you're sacrificing uh, how much damage it's going to do likely, or you're sacrificing how long it's going to last. And, and it, like, so there's basically like, these different axes of trade-offs and you basically custom make what the mechanical effects of the spell are every time. But fictionally what it does is just dependent on interpretation. Uh, in Maze Rats, it's entirely so. Like literally I might get a, spare, a spell called Acid Bubble and that's it. And when I cast it, I sort of like describe what I want it to do and then the GM sort of describes what it actually does and there's just sort of just conversation that happens there. Um, this, some people are really put off by because they're like, oh gosh, like I don't want something that's just exploitable. But with the right attitude and the right player experience, it's very, very freeing and allows you to basically have infinite spells because everything can be interpreted in a variety of ways. Like acid bubble could create a bubble of of acid around someone's head, you know, and like do damage, or it could protect you from acid by putting a bubble around yourself, or it could be thrown on the floor and create, you know, a a trap um, or on and on and on. And, and really interesting interpretations of these spells are what matters. Um, I think it just depends on the experience you're going for in terms of when you flush it out. If you want the player to be a little bit more strategic and tactical, you might let them know exactly what this spell is going to do ahead of time, even though you're improving the effects. Um, like do that before they are at the point of casting so that they can um, know and be fully equipped with what results they're going to get, assuming the casting itself goes well. Mm. And if you want a little bit more... Uh, chaos and variability, you can have the player assume the spell does something and then decide what it actually does 
um, to fit the situation and make it interesting at the moment yeah. of casting and not always like turn it against them, but just make it um, work in interesting and unpredictable ways. And I think that um, is probably what I would mm -hmm. do because it, it makes it um, anticipatory and exciting and um, always allows for magic to be a, a thematic moment, which is f yeah. what I am looking for in magic, which is why I say it's a personal totally. preference. Totally. It, it seems to me based on how you've been describing it, that one way to approach this, one way that I find really attractive, is treat it like a wish from a malevolent or mischievous genie. As in, give it an ironic consequence based on how the player phrases it. I've, in my, in my Blades in the Dark game, I've recently introduced some wish-related mechanics. And players wishing and then rolling to see how the wish goes and then getting an ironic consequence to the wish when the roll doesn't go well is 100% my thing. And it sounds like this, this system gives you the opportunity to do that a little bit, to push back on the ideal solution by making something interesting happen that exists kind of in the framework of what the player has presented you with, but in a way they weren't necessarily considering. So lean into that irony element. Leaning into that could be quite satisfying for everybody at the table. Oh, I can't believe I didn't specify that it was my feat is just like a really fun thing to get your players to, to say and you know wish that they hadn't uh, allowed to happen in retrospect. We end up talking about magic and casting um, a lot on this show, and I think it's because it's one of the most variable and most uh, landmark and interesting points of conversation in fantasy role-playing because it really defines not just how your world works, but how an entire class is going to function. Yeah. In fact, two or more classes, because typically there's like several magic casting classes in most systems. Additionally, I think, um, and he alludes to this in his email here, that it's important for the wizard and the cleric to actually feel different in play. And I like it when systems make an effort to differentiate how their magic works. Um, and unfortunately, like a lot of games, um, and, and vanilla Dungeon World uh, is one of these, um, the, the thing that differentiates the wizard and the cleric is just that they have different spells, but mechanically they effectively are the same. I like the fact that the, the wizard, um, has more control over their magic where they get to cast exactly what they want when they want. Um, but they're on the hook for any screw ups because if, if they physically are the one who is messing up the technique or doing it wrong, then that's where it's going to come from. Whereas the cleric is asking for power that a god is going to intercede and do or some sort of deity at least it's ends up being that way in a lot of my games and that's more of what you were saying where it's like the wish interpretation where like they ask someone for something and how specific they are in the asking is the other person or the other entity there is going to have a lot to do with what the magic actually ends up being i think that and i think well, yeah you know. freebooters definitely takes that approach totally well i can't wait to read more freebooters now that it's been brought up again Thank you very much for your email, Brendan Rivers. I hope we've answered your question in a way that you find satisfying and exciting to use. If we didn't, feel free to write in again, and we will tackle it again next week. And uh, for listeners out there, um, if you're looking for more mechanics for Dungeon World, um, there is this idea that I wanted to briefly touch on, which is the fact that Dungeon World itself, and by that I mean the core rules, the rulebook, the, the sheets, the core classes are a departure point instead of like a holy grail that's set in stone. When you have that, um, it's giving you the tools to understand how a whole spirit and idea of role playing works. And from there, you can go on and add more 
as you wish and as you need. Um, for example, um, there is this uh, creator um, uh, named um, Vince. Wait, what am I looking for? Joe Banner, I believe. No, 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 Jeremy Strand. Sorry, that's what I'm looking for. Um, Jeremy Strand, who made this collection of moves for Dungeon World um, called Drowning and Falling. And it's sort of um, um, going off of this comment that, that Vincent Baker, the creator of Apocalypse World, once said that's, that was like, there are no rules for drowning and falling um, in this game because it, it doesn't need them. You know, like it, that doesn't need to be specifically put into the rule book. Um, and he thought that was a little funny. And so he made a collection of rules for Dungeon World of like, when you're drowning, do this. When you're falling, do this. When you're mind control, do this. Like things that just aren't included in the rule book that, that might come up. Um, but the point is to show you like how a cool custom move can be made and how literally in Dungeon World, it tells you how to make a custom move because it expects that you will, right? It expects that there'll be situations that couldn't be, you know, that couldn't be um, foreseen. Uh, and you want to have the tools in hand to make an interesting move. And reading a cool move in Dungeon World makes you want to engage with that fictional circumstance. Like, Arthur, you were saying there was a particular one here you really liked. Yeah, the first of the falling rules is, right off the bat, incredibly evocative of the experience of standing by something that is very, very scary to fall into. The move is Go ahead and read that move. When you glimpse just how far down it is, pick one. Describe why it doesn't bother you in the least. Tell us about an experience that's given you a healthy respect for falling, or mark experience and tell us about your crippling fear of heights. Oh, that's so good. Because that is exactly what happens when a group of people find themselves at the edge of something steep or dangerous. I say this as someone with a healthy history of rock climbing, that there's definitely that moment of looking down over the side and saying, wow. This is high. Boy, I wouldn't want to take a tumble down that. And, it, and it's a great custom move, too, because it gives a lot of options for what players do. And none of those is a bad option. Now, even if you pick the the crippling fear of heights option, you get an experience point and then you give your DM a flag to play with for later. Yeah, it's designed to create role play moments, right? It's designed to create things that you. this is happening not because you're trying to win the game, but because you want to add color and, and texture to the people in the game as well as the situations themselves. Mm -hmm. Like the, the fact that there is a height, you know, that yeah. is potentially lethal. So these moves across the board remind me of something that the Sprawl puts front and center in its like GM prep stage. In the Sprawl, when you create a score or a mission, part of the creation process is that it encourages you to create a custom move that's specific to the adventure. For instance, in a game of the sprawl I was running a while ago, we did a boat race through the underground canals of Neo Boston. And for that boat race, because the underground canals are maze-like and dark and scary, I had a move about when you try to navigate the canals of Boston at speed, roll plus, I think it was cool or mind, one of the one of the mind stats. Um in order to figure out whether or not you get where you're going correctly and if you lose your pursuit your pursuers while you're down there this is sort of the same thing it's a great not only a, a, a great template for how to create a custom move but also a great inspiration for creating dungeon moves and adventure moves that you can then you know pull out as part of your prep later on 
Yeah, they, they articulate in this um, in this little document, which I will link to, the fact that um, you don't need custom moves. Like you can you can arbitrate just at the table if character falls off something. You don't need to like rush to the rulebook to look exactly how that works. But uh, the advantages of them are that they add um, a little bit of preparation to fall back on. Um, they signal um, potential moments that can happen. Um, they add incentive to do certain things. Like you said, like you can nest a uh, mark and XP in there somewhere for like a character to do something. And they also give agreement um, for um, if something is uh, is written beforehand and put in front of the players, then it won't create this like, oh, seriously, like I'm drowning. I've only been here a couple seconds, you know, because you've got uh, something to point to as preparation of like when this happens, this is what will happen next, like or this is what could. Um, and also, I don't know if I said it correctly before because I was totally falling over myself, but these um, this rule set is written by uh, Jeremy Strandberg. Jeremy Strandberg. Nice work. Well, I think that's going to do it for us today on Play to Find Out. Once again, I've been one of your co-hosts, Arthur or Art Projects on Discord. And I've been your other co-host, Amen or Voidlight on Discord. It's been great having you at the table this week. See you next time.